Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. You win votes by being hard on crime. So you sacrifice the integrity of the nation for short-term gains rather than try to resolve this through responding positively to things like the uh, Uluru Statement, you know, the voice from the heart, where people have said, you know, understand the tyranny of our powerlessness. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia and you're on Australian Politics Live. And my guest in the studio this week sort of requires no introduction really. Pat Dodson's referred to routinely as the father of reconciliation in Australia 30 years ago. He was a commissioner on the Aboriginal Deaths in Custody Inquiry and these days of course he's in federal politics. He's a senator representing WA for the Australian Labor Party and has a shadow ministry in the Indigenous Affairs portfolio. So, or shadow assistant ministry, I don't know, I never get the the terms right. Pat, what is it you say? Uh, Well, I'm the shadow assistant on reconciliation Reconciliation, and constitutional recognition. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I've I've invited Pat into the studio for reasons I think that'll be obvious to most listeners. It's been a very big week in Indigenous relations with white Australia and Pat had some very forceful things to say about it in the Senate this week. Now's the time to stop the rot of First Nations dying in custody, being over imprisoned and their children being put into out-of-care home. I want to start with just a general question, Pat. At the start of the week, our Guardian Essential poll, which we do at the moment every week, showed that Australians, a very strong majority of Australians, 80% thereabouts, believed that there was institutional racism in the US. They were very clear about that. But when you ask the question about whether or not there was institutional racism in Australia, then the sample was much more divided. It was sort of like 30-40, split 30-40. Why do you think that is? Oh, well, I think Australians have tended to see themselves as having a fair relationship with uh, Aboriginal people, First Nations peoples, and I think it, they find it a bit confronting that uh, when there's objective analysis done or serious reporting and, and investigations done, that's not the case. And it's always been a conundrum that Australians think they can... They don't need international observation, criticism or guidance in how to go about First Nations policies or affairs. If you recall, we were reticent about signing up to the United Nations Declaration on Indigenous Peoples' Rights. We finally did that after, you know, some uh, reflection. 
Uh, we still haven't taken that anywhere in terms of domesticating that into Australian law because we have this sort of confidence that we can manage things in-house. Mm-hmm. We do it terribly, terribly badly, I must say, <laughs> <laughs> from a First Nations perspective because as I reflect on, on not only hit the past history but recent history and uh, the Royal Commission is a good indicator of at least one of those benchmarks from which I look back on Australia, then um, you've got to say that there, is, there are patterns, there are systemic patterns that we've got to link in our thinking. I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that later, but, and I think people aren't very good at that. I think people tend to just look in isolation. There's a protest on today, what's that mean? You know, another death in custody, what's that mean? So they don't pull the whole picture together. They, they don't know how to connect all the dots. But if you, as a First Nation person, you're constantly connecting the dots mm. because you're interconnected to a lot of people, either by way of uh, relationship or knowledge of those families or by suffering certain, you know, similar sorts of disadvantage situations, those things. So, there's, and, and naturally, I think First Nations people look for the connectivity because we, we connect to the land, we connect to the topography, we connect to the sky, we connect to people. We have a kinship structure that goes beyond our immediate biological people, you know. So connectivity is a foundational principle in our way of thinking and our attitudinal approach to life. I don't think that's the case for non-Indigenous people, unfortunately. For some cultures it is, but generally for the Anglo-Celtic descendants, I think they've lost a lot of that. Okay. And I want to take you back to the Royal Commission just because obviously the Black Lives Matters protests in Australia over this past weekend related to Indigenous deaths in custody. Just you, you might tell people in a tech what that inquiry was about because obviously for 30 years ago there'll be some people listening to this podcast who weren't born 30 years ago let alone be across the detail of that inquiry but we might start it I'll just put something to you that Neil Mitchell the Melbourne radio host said on Thursday he said that black deaths in custody was a furphy his word because there have been fewer indigenous people per head of prison population dying in custody than white people Right, He sort of acknowledged, obviously, that there were higher Indigenous incarceration rates, but black deaths in custody is a furphy because, you know, not so many black people dying. Now, I just put that as an opening for the Royal Commission and explaining to people what you discovered in that process of inquiry. You can respond to that, obviously, however you, however you like. Well, I, I, there is a correlation between the levels of incarceration and the levels of deaths and Aboriginal people do die disproportionately in custody for the numbers of incarcerations, but they don't die disproportionately to the major prison population. So the key matter in the Royal Commission was to, and the people who might recall there was one commissioner initially, Mr Justice Muirhead, and then he found that and that was my primarily focused on rerunning coronial inquiries. What happened on the occasion someone died? Yep. What did the police do? What did the custodial officers do? The commission got broadened out to a, a national commission in all the jurisdictions. And there were 99 deaths that had occurred between the period of the Royal Commission's inquiry. But the brilliance of the commission, I think, with Elliot Johnson taking over from uh, Justice Muirhead, and Elliot was a renowned jurist from South Australia, very, 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 very good man. And so were the other commissioners, Lou Wyville and uh, Hal Wooten, the late Dan O'Day, and people of that ilk. 
but they then saw that it's the underlying factors. What what is it that's enabling or causes Aboriginal people to come to the attention of the police in the first instance? And that was about health, housing, education, employment, and all the matters that we know of today, overcrowding, etc. And so it was out of that uh, concern uh, for to look at the underlying issues that Elliot Johnson negotiated with Peter Dowding, who was the Premier of Western Australia at the time, for a specific position to be created in the Commission and for and approached me about filling that position. So I, I became a Commissioner that was primarily charged with looking at the underlying issues in Western Australia and not to um, inquire into the deaths per se, but to look at why is it that someone is, in, in these circumstances, coming into the attention of the police, to the courts, then ending up in custody and what happens when they're in custody, whether it's a prison or whether it's a jail cell. Yeah. So the commission saw that this wasn't just about the criminal justice system itself. It wasn't about the police themselves or the custodial officers. It was about their duties. How do they behave in line with their responsibilities and the care that they need to take when they have people in custody. So they, the police obviously aren't doctors, they're not nurses, they're not well-equipped yeah. for custodial duties even. Uh, that's, the, that's why we have prisons. And so the, the encounter that the police often have is someone at their worst, normally at their worst conditions as a human being. Not always, but normally at their worst position. And, but they don't understand the underlying issues. Yeah of that person's disposition, whether they've got a heart problem or some other medical condition or whether they've, whether they've um, mental health, mental health issues. And yeah. a lot of mental health now we've become more aware of through, through FASD and kids, uh, young people being incarcerated because of they've done the crime, but their mental capacity to make the pleas are, 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 are diminished. Yeah. So we have more people going into custody rather than into medical care because they've committed, technically committed a crime not able to make a plea, then they're held for, at the pleasure of governors, basically, to release them. Yeah. So the, the criminal justice system is not the answer to the uh, awful social conditions that uh, people find themselves in. So the governments have had 339 recommendations from that commission, most of them about what to do in the social space, some about the criminal justice system, and how it could operate. For instance, custody should be a last resort. You know, it's taken some time for that to, to perpetrate. And that notifications for people when they're taken into custody should take place. And that there should be Aboriginal people appointed to be contacted or to come into the prisons or the cells when someone's in a, in a state so that there's someone other than a uniformed person they can discuss, and, and that worked for a while. You had what they call the visitor scheme mm-hmm. was, a, was a good scheme to uh, act as a, a neutral person that could provide advice to the authorities and help, I suppose, educate officers and others on the job as to why someone may be behaving in the way that they do. Yeah. Because most officers uh, have come from overseas. Uh, I found in Western Australia, I think most people had come from the Black Watch, the Scottish Black Watch. Really? <laughs> they, they were custodial officers. They were uh, people who had only been in the country for less than six years or so. So their backgrounds in terms of Australian history and the relationship of uh, 
governments to Aboriginal people was very limited in many ways. So they imported a lot of people out of South Africa and people out of Zimbabwe. You know, so the custodial, this is not to condemn those people, it's just to say that their cultural prisons through which they saw First Nations peoples was pretty clouded. Yeah. And even the best of them were frustrated because they didn't know how to deal in the in the situations that they were uh, given responsibility given responsibility for, for. so I mean, so is the bottom line like so expressing this in the simplest terms is it is the bottom line that indigenous people die in custody because well there's a whole chain sitting behind that they come to the attention of of police more quickly, they're charged more frequently, they're held more frequently, therefore this is why you get whatever we're up to now, some dreadful number, mm. over 400 deaths yeah. um, in custody. Is that it or is there something about this I don't get, Pat? No, I, I think that's, that's certainly a big part of it. People become institutionalised into, in, into the process but also their underlying health conditions aren't being addressed. The Prison the mental health provisions are, are not so great. They're not, you know, they're not resourced sufficiently. The record shifting between the prisons and you know a medical service isn't always that great. So the knowledge of an individual's personal records aren't always readily available to the particularly the custodial people. There's all sorts of confidentiality things about that. But and and if people have got no hope, if people have, have, have find themselves under surveillance constantly because, uh, you know, the police will come to them because they did six months a couple of years ago or a year ago and then they start getting accused and they feel that there's no exit out of the out of the revolving door system and they, they just go from prisons, from go jailhouses to, to prisons and courts. So deaths in custody and, and police have got to learn, I think, to have... Um, they, the incarceration should be the last resort. Take people to, to hospitals or to clinics, and clinics are going to learn because there have been a lot of deaths in those situations as well whilst they're in custody, that hospitals and clinics are going to learn about how to behave or how to respond in those situations as well. And, and of course, you're dealing with people who could be violent, they could be under drugs, they could be under all sorts of uh, medical uh, you know, health issues. And you've got to be able to deal with that. And medical people are the best people to deal with. They're not a police officer. Uh, they'll use force. What about, and you may think that this is a distinction without a difference, and if you do, tell me, Ryan, but do you think that, with the obvious caveat, not all police, not all custodial officers, but do you think there is institutional racism in the police force in in the sort of among the ranks of custodial officers? Or is it a, is it just a lack of empathy, a, lux- a lack of cultural acuity? What is it, do you think? It's a good question. It's a good question because, um, you know, there are good uh, police and there are good custodial people and there are a lot of good people in, in the society. But there is this disproportionate incarceration rate. Mm. And you can ask yourself, why is that? And that's possibly because the amount of training the police get is very small. So probably an hour of their total training period. Most of them probably have never read the Royal Commission recommendations, let alone the report, and they don't get to have extensive education about that. You know, they, they, they might be given something primarily to protect themselves, yes, uh, yeah. rather than to understand uh, the the kind of people that they're dealing with. Yeah, and so the interface between police, and that's why part of the Royal Commission was to to say to the police officers in the regional areas who had authority 
to set up the reference groups where they could have the discussions with local community people and talk about what might happen or what could be done or how to do things at the regional level in certain situations prior to crises arising. Yeah. And then that would help the police execute their duties with the kind of social licence and understanding that a community needs to have. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just seen as an authoritarian approach uh, coming in to stand over. And uh, that always leads to fear and uh, obviously the attributing of the worst motives to uh, authorities. So a bit of both, maybe some racism, maybe some just lack yes. of comprehension, lack of uh, understanding, lo- la- lack of cross-cultural understanding, for want of a better term. Yeah, and, and police are trained. You know, they're trained people, so, and they're trained to assert authority. And anyone that's going to give them lip or, or, or defy them in any way, they're going to assert authority. Mm. And that's usually physical. Mm. And then they're usually protected because of, of that. So they're not trained to be psychoanalyzing people. You know? mm. they're, not, they're not trained to, to, to sit down and have a cup of tea and talk to someone. Mm. Uh, they're not trained to, to observe body language in a way that enables them to, to work out a better way to communicate. So there are many things about their training and their equipping that should be uh, attended to and not just for aggressive responses or the use of tasers or, or other sorts of, you know, shoot to kill kind of uh, behaviours, which we've seen, unfortunately, uh, creeping into the policing service in recent days. Mm. Let's go to the protests. Loud and proud now, people! Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! Everyone! Black Lives Matter! Uh, Black it's been matter. big news and the Prime Minister's decided to rev things up about the legitimacy of the protests. Come on, people! Always was! It's an important issue, but when it comes to the issue of gatherings and protests, the health advice says it put other Australians' lives at risk, including in particular Indigenous lives. What do you think about that? Because obviously there's protests and there's a public, you know, there's a pandemic. What do you reckon? Well, there are several agendas that are running and, and there's huge risks. Uh, I went on, uh, you know, uh, sending out a message to the communities early in the pandemic saying stay at home, uh, don't, don't bother going to visit family and communities, etc. Let's put all that off until next year. And that uh, this is a dangerous thing. Mm. It, it has no friends and it will kill you. Yeah. And uh, so I'm on the record of saying that. So when it came to the protests, there's no, there's no winners in this argument. There's no winners here because people are so frustrated with the... This is 30 years on from the Royal Commission that made 339 recommendations, a lot of them in the social, you know, social space, health, housing, education, etc., and as well as better ways to behave in the policing service, notifications rather than imprisonment, etc., or rest. Mm. So people are frustrated and they have seen very little action. It's only recently we've seen a few police being charged for, and the, the fellow at the UN, the mood charged with murder. But we've seen some awful deaths, some awful deaths. A man basically fried to death in the back of a, a, a prison van in Western Australia. Of an Aboriginal elder. Mr Ward died of heat stroke after being driven across the goldfields in a prison van in 2008. The awful treatment of uh, you know, a young lady in the lock-up at uh, Port Hedland. Today. 
Ms Jew died two days after being locked up at South Headland Police Station for the non-payment of fines. The lady on the train and... Uh, in Victoria. Tanya Day was taken into custody after she fell asleep on a train in regional Victoria in December 2017. She died in hospital 17 days later. The so there's a, a, there's a, and these are the appalling things that, that uh, people see. They don't often see the good things that uh, police do or, or custodial people do. But it's the lack of action about those sorts of issues where... If you and I assaulted someone, we'd be charged and we'd be brought before the court straight up. There seems to be an immunity for the police. You want the police to carry out the law and protect citizens, but on the other hand, they have a high duty to deal with the citizens in a, in a, in a way that, you know, accords people as much respect as you can. Mm. And, and we probably haven't developed a, uh, a, an environmental or an employment set of conditions articulates the duty of care mm. very clearly to policing officers. They've got guidelines and protocols and books that tell them about things, but they've got to be held accountable to standards by independent authority. Yeah. And so people are frustrated because police seem a law unto themselves, right? Like paraphrasing yes. you, yes. right? So the frustration builds. George Floyd is obviously dies at the hand of police in the States, massive international focus and consciousness spills into the Australian political system and, and people hit the streets. But but should they have done that or shouldn't they have done that? Well, I, I can't say what people should do or shouldn't do. I mean, I think a lot of people have been patient. They've set up committees, they've had discussions, they've even joined the police forces, they've, you know... They've become lawyers, they're at the bar, they're trying to argue cases, etc. So, and yet we still see a systemic set of behaviours in certain circumstances which just triggers the most awful recollections of our interconnected history. And, and that's the problem we've got, that we've got to have a, a, a truth-telling, and, and that's the thing we're seeing now with the protesters. I'm not sure whether the pulling down of statues of, you know, racist individuals is going to answer that particular concern. But, um, you know, I, I uh, was reminded in recent days to go back and read Steve Biko. I write what I like. It was a book he wrote. And he was the leader of, of the black consciousness movement in South Africa yep. prior to apartheid being lifted and, and was killed by police, uh, ultimately, and a young man. But his definition of racism was discrimination by one group of people against another group of people for the purpose of subjugation. Now, none of that's about colour. That's about power, and it's about capacity, influence, status. Uh, and if you're constantly doing that, you're constantly subjugating, as I've seen with the First Nations peoples, then it's, um, you're going to get reaction. And the risk-taking against the uh, virus, I think, was, was relativised. So people decided that, there was, that because of extended family connections and loyalties, uh, if they're going to get the virus, and then, you know, they'll die just as much as the person they love that they're protesting on the streets about. So I think the fear for those who live in comfort is that they, they themselves might find them the spike you know, getting worse, and therefore the infringement upon their liberties and uh, freedoms uh, being curtailed even more.
And so it's a, it's a difficult conundrum. You know, a lot of Aboriginal people got wiped out in the Spanish flu. Whenever there's an, uh, you know, a lot of us got wiped out initially within, with the viruses that were imported when the, when the white folks came here. Yeah. So, and, and if, if there's been no improvement to our situations in the last 200 years, in a sense, particularly in this criminal justice space where we could do things, and we've you know, got recommendations to guide us about that, and then this, you, you can't argue states and commonwealths who can come together around the virus. Why can't they come together around this particular crisis mm. and find avenues to, to solve it? We'll answer your question. Why? Well, partly it's money. Partly it's, um, it's ideology. And partly it's uh, you win votes by being hard on crime. So you sacrifice the integrity of the nation for short-term gains rather than try to resolve this through responding positively to things like the uh, Uluru Statement, you know, the voice from the heart, where people have said, you know, understand the tyranny of our powerlessness. Uh, we want a voice to the parliament to talk about these things, to inform you when you're doing the wrong thing in a constructive, democratic way. And we want that entrenched in the Constitution. We want truth to be told, not just about our intertwined history, but about the history of the First Nations peoples themselves, the uniqueness of why our lands are important, why sacred sites are important, why kinship structures are important, so that you might understand why in the modernised livings that we've got, we're going to respond in a certain way. You, you do damage a site, we're going to respond because you should understand our religious and, and the cultural beliefs in relation to these things. If you affect our family in a certain way, you, you know we're going to respond. You know, so we, there's, it's not a lack of knowledge here. It's it's the it's the persistence of the desire to subjugate the Aboriginal people because you can. And do you think that that explains the Prime Minister's comments about the protests? He's taken a while to come off the long run about the protests. He's sort of he's in a mode. Um, we've all seen a mode of leadership of, of 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 leading in a crisis of bringing the country together. Uh, I think quite genuinely he has been in that mode. Certainly over, we've had Matthias Cormann saying, you know, the, the protests are terrible. We, what about all the people who couldn't go to, you know, their, their parents' funeral or whatever else? We've had Scott Morrison saying similar things in a couple of radio interviews this week, sort of revving up the divisions. What's that about? Well, it's a denial of our own institutions. I mean, the people in Sydney went to court and they sought, you know, as we do, we go to the courts and we get a ruling. And the court, the, uh, there are two instances where one judge ruled it out and the other judge ruled it in. And so they felt legitimised in, in what their actions were going to be. Um, in other places, there were varying views from, from medical people. And we're getting differing views from, you know, the football crowd that want to see crowds at the football games. They're gradually lifting action activities around pubs and uh, you know funerals and weddings and so forth so there's it's a bit hard and we're getting indicators to tell us that the virus you know we haven't had a case in the last day or so so it's a bit confusing i think for a lot of punters to know what's what's safe and not safe and then when you feel as though you've been denied the opportunity to uh, meet your obligations to your mother or someone that, uh, whose birthday it was and you couldn't go, and then you're going to be resentful of what people seem to be uh, able to do without 
without it any uh, penalty associated with it. So it's, it is a bit confusing. I, I wouldn't condemn people's motives. I think people took great risks, and, and the, that's a personal risk factor. We'll know in a few weeks' time whether there are family members that have contracted the virus, and that'll be sad if that's happened. But, you know, uh, there are a lot of people who are putting themselves at risk every day of the week to keep us all safe. And uh, we do praise them, we acknowledge them, we recognise them. And no one wants to see this thing spread anymore or any more deaths to occur. But if you don't stop the causes that are giving rise to the levels of custody and you don't stop the deaths in custody, you don't stop the causes for why you need to take 30,000 you know, Aboriginal kids and put them in out-of-home care, if, if you don't deal with these things, you're, you're basically on a track to some form of genocide. And if you're confronting genocide as opposed to contracting a, a virus by protesting, you know, I think people are going to make some decisions that are going to be on the basis of going to the, going to the protest. Mm. You've seen a lot of prime ministers now, obviously, in your time. <laughs> uh, in, I think Menzies was the first. Well, <laughs> well you've seen a few, right? I don't know if right? people remember him, the Libs do. But it's sort of, I'm just sort of interested, right, in this... Um, it's sort of it's subjugation, it's paternalism, it's you know this is why this conversation matters because you then can express how it feels to be a First Nations person on the receiving end of all of this helpful advice, mm. right? Over over fifty years, but Morrison, where, what do you think about him? He started early in his prime ministership, obviously being reasonably forward leaning on recognition, for example, and then has pulled right back. Where do you think he's going to sit in terms of a Prime Minister who does something or does nothing in this area? Well, he, he and his First Nations Minister could go down in history as doing some great things. You know, if they actually brought a bill into the Parliament that set up the voice with regional um, authorities or place-based decision-making and empowered uh, Aboriginal peoples at those levels and had states locked into an agreement uh, around that. And if he was to, you know, embark and encourage the truth-telling process and the Makarata process. And, and in fact, if he sat down and started to think of... Uh, of how best to prepare the nation for a treaty or agreement-making process. Now, that mightn't take place in his lifetime, but if he lays the foundation and, and shows that there's an openness towards that and, then, and that that's part of the resolution and healing of the wounds that gives rise to people going mad sometimes, then that would be a great level of leadership. It's, I don't know why he's reticent about that. Mm. Oh, politically, yes, he's got some people there on the hard right who... Uh, you know, think mangoes shouldn't grow on trees, but you know, there's a from a, as from a national perspective, as a statesman perspective, we've had some really, you know, uh, leaders who've been prepared to step outside of their party comfort zones and actually indicate a direction for the nation, and that's the we're in those times now. We're in those times not only because we need our economy back on its foot, but we need a new social compact, as it were, a new agreement with First Nations peoples about their position within the nation as we go forward. Mm. And, and, the, and the, the ingredients are there. There's the Reform Council that's, that's going to be set up. The First Nations are represented through uh, organisational entities, but they've got to be given better status than that. 
and there's a capacity to bring bills in and pass laws as quickly as possible with the collaboration of uh, of the Labor Party and the crossbenchers on on many of these things. So it just takes the leadership of uh, the Prime Minister to wake up one morning and say, yes, uh, Captain Cook sailed in here, but uh, he's wrecked some, uh, you know, his consequences or the consequences of that colonisation process is what we've been grappling with for the last 200 years and it's time that we tied the ship up and reformed uh, that legacy in a way that gives pride to all of us. Do you think he'll do it or not? Uh, I would hope he does it. I see. I, I seriously. What, is, what does your gut tell you, Pat? My gut tells me he's not going to do it. Uh, but he can come from left field at different times. Mm. And uh, I think if his minister uh, is a bit more forthright, then he, he may get there. And then uh, and, uh, if he listens to the peak organisations, uh, he may get there. He, uh, I, I think the connectivity between issues is, is the problem he's got. And the solution to that connectivity is, I think, pretty clearly articulated in the Uluru Statement as to the way forward here. Mm. Last question. So just again on the protests and Morrison, you know, we saw some protests, much smaller protests a few weeks ago about conspiracy theories 5G and Bill Gates was spreading COVID into the universe or I, I, I don't entirely follow some of the logic. Those protests were okay. Those protests were, you know, stuff happens in a democracy. Black Lives Matters protests in a different category. Why? Uh, because he can't control it. He, he can't. Uh, he would have to make a decision about these more systemic issues. He has to make a decision about the voice of the parliament. He has to make a decision about that being entrenched constitutionally, and he has to make a decision about the Macarata type commission, truth telling and agreement making. Now he he has no clear line of sight as to where any of that might go and that's what he's fearful of losing control of a process that actually requires dialogue discourse and negotiation which he isn't in command of Mm, interesting thank you so much for coming on the show i really do appreciate the time the middle of the busy sitting week thank you as always to my executive producer miles martignoni for pulling the show together thank you to you guys for listening thank you to you guys for sharing it and talking about it and posting it on your social media sites we really do appreciate it we'll be back next week thanks very much Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.